Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Dr. Ben Reinhardt. Ah, thank you very much, and it's, it's very good to be back. We're going to be doing three things tonight. The first thing that we have to do, I want to spend just a brief moment, five, ten minutes, talking about why it makes sense to be talking about poetry at all. Okay? I mean, after all, the culture is crumbling, we've got all sorts of things to worry about, it's cold outside, why are we standing here talking about poetry tonight? The second thing I'm going to do, because we are dealing with a very, very old poem, I want to give you some necessary background to understanding that poem. And then the third thing we're going to do is actually dive into the dream of the root and start walking through this very old poem <clears throat> about the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. All right? So, first off, why do we bother with poetry? And I have to say, it's actually a difficult question for me to answer. It's not, it's not difficult because there is no answer. Um, it's difficult because there are so many answers, and they all come charging forward at once, and they, and they sort of like clog the spout a little bit, right? Asking, like, asking why we ought to do poetry, it's, it's, like asking, it's like asking why do you prefer to be a free man to being a slave? It's like asking why do you like clean water? It's like asking, uh, why do you like a steak, a ribeye, medium rare, over uh, a hamburger from McDonald's, right? And the answer to all those three questions is the same. It's, well, it's because you're human. And appreciating these good things, like freedom, or clean water, or, or a nice ribeye, is part of the fully flourishing human life. God is very kind to us. He recognizes this, right? This is why the longest and one of the most important books of the Bible is the Psalms, right? 150 Psalms, longest book of the Bible, all poetry. It's a, conden it's a, it's a condescension to us. By the way, I, I hate to be terribly rude, but can we kill this? I'm going to need the whiteboard uh, later, later tonight. All right. So, with uh, not kills a strong word. Can, can, can we uh, can we can we hide the face of Christ? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, word choices, they, they sometimes matter. <laughs> if only. <laughs> All right, so, so that's the first reason why we, we do poetry. It's because it's part of being human. But I confess that saying we do it because we're human is a kind of vague answer, and it's not particularly practical. You might want something a little bit more concrete. You might want something a little bit more real. So I'm going to give you two or three really good reasons why you should all be reading poetry when you go home tonight. All right? Here's the first reason. Poetry is a vehicle for expressing truths that you just can't express in any other way. If you've got your Bibles, you could open up to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through about 11. All right? 
And depending on the Bible you have, uh, they might offset this, put it in italics or indent it, because what St. Paul is actually quoting here, it's, it's, this, isn't, this isn't just St. Paul talking, this is St. Paul quoting Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Yeah, This is St. Paul quoting an ancient hymn that the Philippians sang at their liturgies. All right? Would you be so kind? Do you have it there? Would, would you read it off loudly? 2 and 11? Uh, 2 verse 6. Yeah. Oh, it's quite all right. It's right in front of me. Here, you know, I'll... Here. Okay, yes, exactly. All right. So, here we go. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, and here... Here we go at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, etc., etc., etc. This is originally a hymn. Thank you so much. Okay? And there's a richness to that, Right? As grateful as we can be for the clarity of the definitions given on the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, and as grateful as we can be for the definition, definitions on Christology at Chalcedon, there's a beauty and a richness there that goes beyond just saying one God and three persons. And, right? You see that, right? Okay, so that's one reason why we, why we do poetry, because you can express truths in poetry that you just can't do in prose. This is why the great saints... St. Ambrose, for instance, or, or St. Bernard, or St. Thomas Aquinas, expressed their love for Christ in poetry. That's one reason. Another reason is, poetry is incredibly, incredibly effective at disciplining and forming both the intellect and the will. Okay? If you remember, if you were here for the talk on the Psalms, you'll remember that the saints encourage reading the Psalms for one incredibly big reason. Because the Psalms for them are the words of Christ, right? They convey the experiences and the emotions of Christ. And when you pray the Psalms with Christ, you can form your mind and your will and your, your emotions to those of Christ. And eventually they start to shape you. So that's another great reason to read good poetry, because it can sort of shape your emotions and shape your mind. All right? Um, you also read poetry because it's beautiful and because it's fun. But, uh, well, I think it's beautiful and it's fun at least. Anyways, so those are three reasons to read poetry, and those are three reasons why every really functioning culture has had a high place for poetry. Every really thriving Catholic culture has both appreciated and produced great poetry. And, hey, we're, we're here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, right? We like the idea of renewing a culture in Christ, we're going to have to take these things pretty seriously. All right? Unfortunately, as English speakers, we're at a particular disadvantage because the Anglophone culture has not been predominantly Catholic for at least the past 400 years, right? So a lot of our greatest poetry is either non-Catholic, a-Catholic, or anti-Catholic. So there are ways to get around this. I'm going to give you one way to try to navigate it tonight. And the way we're going to try to navigate it tonight is by going back to the earliest poetry uh, in the English language. So the earliest poetry of our language, the earliest poetry you'll find in English. All right?
All good? All together? Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so eventually we're going to get to dream of the Dream of the Rude, which is a fantastic poem for Lenten meditation. But the Dream of the Rude is, well, it's at least a thousand, probably closer to 1,300 years old. Okay? Alexander Pope, the great critic, says that the perfect judge of each work of writ will read it in the spirit in which the author writ. So if we want to get what the Dream of the Rude is doing, we're going to have to take a step back before we go forward, and we're going to have to dive in a little bit to the culture and the mindset of the people who wrote it. Okay? So, to do that, we're actually going to step back into history for a second. All right? And the relevant history for the Dream of the Rude, it doesn't start in England. Weirdly enough, it doesn't even start in Roman, Brit or in Roman Britain. It starts in Rome itself, all right? As you probably know, the Roman Empire conquers and subjugates the island of Britain, most of the island of Britain, in the first century AD. And Rome is really good at a lot of things. One of the things that the Romans are exceptionally good at is making little Romans wherever they go. So, for over a couple of centuries, they are molding the island of Britain in their own image. And now, the one thing that everyone knows about the Roman Empire is that the Roman Empire ends, right? Uh, Virgil had called the Roman Empire the empire without end. Well, sorry, the, the, the empire without end actually does come to an end. What time do we have? All right. We don't have time to talk about everything that brings the Roman Empire to the end, but it's centuries of civil war, military dictators, emperors deposed, barbarian invasions. It's, it's a long and sad story. But here's the funny thing for our purposes tonight. Britain, Britain isn't affected much at all by all of this. Because if you think about the geography, it makes sense, right? If a civil war erupts tomorrow in the continental United States, Hawaii, Alaska, they'd be pretty good places to be, all things considered, right? And Britain finds itself in the same place. It's not completely unaffected by all of the turmoil, but things tend to go pretty well for Britain in these waning years of the Roman Empire. Things go pretty well up until one critical date. And people will haggle a little bit on dates. This is on your handout, but I'm going to put it up here because it's so important. 410 A.D. 410 A.D., we're following St. Bede's chronology. This is when Alaric and the Visigoths sack, Visigoths? Alaric and the Goths sack Rome. And Rome, uh, it reacts like a body under stress. It pulls everything in. The Roman general Stilicho makes a very sensible decision. He says, if we can't protect the heart of the empire, right, if we can't protect Rome itself, why on earth do we have legions all the way up in Britain at the end of the world? It makes sense. So he recalls the legions. And after, after over 250 years, more time than America has been a country, the legions have been in Britain, and then they're gone. And the effects are immediate. They're, they are catastrophic. Uh, because the legions, they're the military defense. They're also the economy, and I apologize if you've heard me say this before, right? They're the military defense, they're the civil service, they are the engine for economic growth because, hey, you've got the military, you need soldiers eat a lot, 
They need clothes. They need leather for their shoes. They need tin for their roofs. Overnight, all gone. Also all gone are most of the fighting age young men of England, or of Britain. Can't call it England yet. And the effects are immediate and the effects are catastrophic. Because now you have this country that's been prosperous, right? They've, they've been doing pretty well. But they've got a lot of hungry neighbors, and now they have no one to protect them. So you've got Scots invading from Ireland, Picts invading from Scotland, and life gets very difficult very, very quickly. In 446, that's the next date on your handout, the Britons have had enough. They send a letter to a man named Aetius, who is the, now the supreme general in the Western Roman Empire. They say, Aetius, thrice consul, to you come the groans of the Britons. We need your help. Question? All right. Now, Aetius would love to send help, but there's one minor problem that Aetius has in 446. That problem is named Attila the Hun, right? He's, he's rampaging all over Europe, and if you've got Attila the Hun at your back door, you just can't send men to Britain. It's the same problem Stilicho had. So he turns them down. And now we come to the critical date. 449 AD. The Britons decide we can't get help from Rome. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? They do what the Romans have always done. If you can't fight your battles yourself, eh, you hire a mercenary, right? So, three shiploads come over from northern Germany, southern Denmark. They're led by men with names like Hengist. So this is 449. You get Hengist and Horsa, both of whose names, oddly enough, mean horse. So you've got the Horse Brothers coming over to England, right? And they're going to put things right. And it works really well for a while, a very short while, because Hengist and Horsa and the mercenaries, they are able to fight back the invaders. They push the Picts back to Scotland, they push the Scots back to Ireland, and everything looks great, well, for about three minutes, right? Because three minutes is roughly the amount of time it takes Hengist and Horsa to do a simple arithmetical calculation. The, the calculation looks something like this. Okay, here's us. Right? Here's the Picts, the Scots, the invaders, right? So we beat them. They beat the Britons. And what are we going to do with that? Well, simple enough, we'll eliminate the middleman, right? So, having defeated the Britons' enemies, the Angles and the Saxons turn on their former employers. And unlike the Romans, who tended to hire mercenaries a little bit more intelligently, the Britons have no hope of fighting these guys off, right? Because after all, they had no military of their own. They, they were defenseless. I'm a medievalist. And as a medievalist, I really, really hate the term Dark Ages. The term Dark Ages is usually used by at least professionally, it's used by kind of bigoted people, right? It's a slur. People say dark ages when they don't want to have to think about the ideas that people had back then because they were all just stupid bar barbarians, right? That's why people usually use the word dark ages. We just forget about St. Thomas Aquinas, that's dark ages. Dante, that's dark ages, right? 
In this one instance, I approve of the term dark ages, all right? Because between 449 and 597, the lights go out in Britain. There's just nothing, nothing that we know. Uh, it's like the movie where like, the lights go out and you hear then like a bunch of guys fighting and things break and then you flip the lights back on and the room's a mess. That's what happens between 449 and 597. The, the devastation is complete. Let's see, do we have time for a... If you want to know, we don't have time. So I'm not, we do? All right, so here, here are two ways you, you understand how complete the devastation was. First of all, if King Arthur ever lived, and I believe that someone like Arthur ever lived, this would be the dates when he lived, between 449 and 597. We have no record, anytime close to King Arthur, of anyone named King Arthur, because nobody's writing. Another way you can understand how bad things are, it's actually by linguistics, okay? So what tends to happen when two cultures clash, their languages mix, okay? You think of like Creole in Louisiana, right? You think of modern French, which is a mixture of Latin and Germanic languages, all right? When the Anglo-Saxons come into Britain, what should happen is that the native Brythonic dialect and, uh, and the English the Germanic dialect would mix and you get words from both, okay? Anyone want to hazard a guess at how many Brythonic words we have running around in modern English? One. Maybe three. The, the one definite word is bin, B-I-N, you know, the bin outside where you store your stuff. That's the one word that survives from Brythonic in modern English, okay? When you think about, the analogy I'll give is this. Think about the U.S. military and the, the Native American wars, okay? The conquest was pretty conclusive. I think we can probably all say that, right? But there are hundreds of Native American words in modern English. One. Okay? The conquest is devastating. The conquest is complete. That old Roman order is swept almost completely away. All right? Now, the lights come back on in 597. This is when St. Gregory the Great sends uh, the man, St. Augustine of Canterbury, not of Hippo, St. Augustine of Canterbury, to evangelize the Anglo-Saxons, okay? There's a funny story about that. Ask me about it in questions and answers, and we'll have time to talk about the funny story of St. Gregory. But, for right now, know this. When the missionaries get back to old Britain, now we can call it England, they find a dramatically different world. Than, what was, than the one that they knew. Everything is completely changed. And if I had to describe it in one adjective, the adjective I would give to this new Germanic world in England would be hard. All right? It's a hard world. The, the worldview of these German people is hard and grim and depressing. When Bishop Paulinus goes to convert King Edwin, for instance, this will just give you an example. When Paulinus goes to King Edwin, Right? King Edwin calls a council of all, of his, all his chief men, and they discuss whether or not they want to adopt this new religion. Okay? One of the counselors stands up, and this is the number two thing on your handout, and says this. This is how the present life of human beings on earth seems to me, O king, in comparison with the time that is unknown to us. 
It is as though you it is as though you were sitting at dinner with your aldermen and thanes in wintertime, aldermen and thanes, your noblemen, with a good fire burning in the midst to warm the hall, but outside the storms of winter rain or snow are raging, when a sparrow flies swiftly in through one door and out through another. Just for the time it is inside, it is safe from the wintry tempest, but after the briefest period of calm has passed in a moment, it soon slips out of your sight, coming out of winter and returning into winter again. So this life of human beings appears but for a short while, but of what comes after or what went before, we know nothing at all. And that's the view of the world, right? We come out of the dark and the cold and the wind and the rain. We have this one brief tiny moment in the sun, and then we're gone again, we don't know where. And this nobleman says, if this new religion gives you anything more certain, if it gives you anything better, I say you go for it, right? Like I said, it's a hard view of the way the world works. It's also hard in its social relationships, right? You think of, you think of sort of the, the building block of society in, in modern life. It's, it's what? It's the family, right? And that, that's, those are the relationships that we tend to think of. In Anglo-Saxon England, the prevailing relationship is not father and son, not husband and wife, not, uh, not brother and brother. It's the Lord and his men. It's the warlord, the war leader, and his comitatus, his, his servants, his thanes. This is the relationship we care about, right? This is the relationship we celebrate in our great heroic poetry. We tell about the Lord who rewards his men. We tell about the men who die for their Lord, and that's what we care about. And we also say, if family and your Lord come into conflict, you go with your Lord, because that's, what you, that's the guy you care about. Okay? Now, it's also got a pretty hard poetic system. Okay? So, the poetry fits the character of the people. And after all, this is a poetry talk, so we're coming back to the poetry now. I need to tell you three things about the poetry if you want to understand what's going on in the Dream of the Rood. The first thing that you need to know about is the poetic form itself. The building block of Anglo-Saxon poetry is the alliterative line. Now, there are some complicated rules, but I'll make it simple. Each line starts off with repeated hard sounds on, on hard stresses, and then sort of tapers off towards the end. And I'll do you one better than giving you a simple definition. I'll, I'll show you. It's this. It's what way gardena in yardagum theod cuninga thrum yafrunan who thought etheling as Ellen Framidon off shield shaving sheath and athratum and we just sort of trail off from there. That's the line. It's a very serious somber line. You can't write something happy and go lucky in that poetry. It just doesn't work. The best they get is sort of wryly ironic. That, that's as funny as we get. All right. More important though than the alliterative line. is a technique called variation. All right? Variation works like this. You never say something once if you can say it four or five times, right? Um, so if I'm the old English poet, I won't just say Deacon Sabatino. I'll say Deacon Sabatino, the wise man, the Italian gentleman, the, the black-coated fellow, right? Or something like that. Now, that's not very good poetry. That's hack poetry because I'm a hack. But the way that the poets try to do it, the way that a good poet will do it, they will select their terms to fit what they're talking about, right? So they'll choose a term that 
is particularly appropriate at a given time. So if you want to draw out someone as a really great noble man at a point to, to underscore the treachery of his opponents, you'll bring up his generosity here, right? If you want to draw out the tragedy of someone's death, you'll talk about what a good man he was to his children or something like that, right? That's the sort of idea which, of what you would do. All right, that's the second thing. Third thing worth knowing about are kennings, okay? A kenning is a poetic compound. And what it is, it's an intensely compressed uh, simile is basically what it is. All right? I'll give you just one example because we're terribly short on time. Bahnhus. Okay? Bahnhus. That's your bone house. Can you guess what bone house might refer to? Cemetery? Oh, that, that'd be good. Um, barn? Barn? It's not, not going to be barn. It's referring to you yourself. What, what is your bone house? It's your body, right? Oh, hey, because look at it. Your body's kind of like a house, right? You've got, you've got your legs, you've got your bones, which are kind of like the frame of the house, right? If you think about old English architecture, it's kind of like certain Swiss or German architecture where you've got the beams with the mud packed in, right? Hey, just like you, because you've got your bones, you've got, well, what's this? It's, it's clay, right? It's clay packed around the bones. You've got a thatched roof on top. Hey, you've got, you've got a thatched roof on top. You've got windows, all right? So you say bone house, and it draws to mind the image of a house like a body, okay? Now, it comes alive when Beowulf says when he fought his enemy, he broke his bone house, okay? What would it look like if one of those old houses was broken down? It would be rubble, right? You'd have, you'd have the beam sticking out here. You'd have the, the roof caved in. You'd have the windows cracked. Take that back to the body. That's the way a kenning works. It's, that, that's a particularly graphic example, but that's the way a kenning works. All right? Now, that's that hard old Germanic poetry. The last way that the Germanics... The Germanic society is hard. It's darn hard to convert. Okay? The missionaries will come in. Everyone will think Christianity is a great idea. Everyone will convert. The missionaries will go away. Everyone will revert. Or, more frustrating than that, you'll get the missionaries coming in. Everyone will convert. Well, but just sort of, right? They'll say, oh, we, can, we, we like this Jesus. So they'll take your crucifix and put it in the temple between the idols of like Thor and Odin. Okay? So they, they don't really get it. And here's where the poetry comes in. Okay? So we're going to walk through one very short English poem, then we're going to go into Dream of the Root. The short English poem is called Cadman's Hymn. It's on the back of your first handout. The story of Cadman goes like this. Cadman is what you would call today a late vocation. All right? He is just a commoner who late in life attaches himself to the monastery of Whitby. Now this is... This is a problem, in a way, because Whitby is kind of high society in Anglo-Saxon England. And poor Cadman, he's just, he's just the guy who keeps the cows. Okay? So, at Whitby, whenever you have a major feast, what people do is they'll take the harp and they'll pass it around the table at the refectory and everyone will sing their song. Cadman's never learned. So every time he sees it coming, he dreads it. He dreads it because it's going to be humiliation when he can't sing the song. So one night he's had enough and he runs out to the cows because he knows the cows and the cows understand him. Right? 
Just avoid all the humiliation. As he's lying there with the cows, sleeping, he has a dream. And in this dream, a man appears to him and says, Cadman, sing something for me. Cadman, understandably peeved, says, I can't sing. That's why I'm out here in the first place. Nevertheless, Cadman, you must sing something for me. Cadman says, well, what do you want me to sing? Sing for me the first creation. So, Cadman opens his mouth and something like this comes out. New schon herian hilven reaches weard me otudes meachta and his mod yethank we ark wulder father swahi wundra hiwas eche drichten or anstelda he era shop er den bearnum hilven rova hali shippend da midan yard man kunes weard eche drichten after teoda firam fulden freya almikti you've got both sort of a literal line by line translation and then a freer translation below now here's what i want you to do you remember that technique of variation how many different words for God do you see in that short poem? Words for God. What's that? Vader? Yeah. Be easier on yourself. Just, just go from the translation. Give me one. Okay, so we got... We got the Heaven Kingdom Guardian. Yep. Okay, so he's the measurer. Yeah, keep going. Father of glories. He's the shaper. Mankind's guardian. Ooh, that's interesting. So we're back to eternal Lord again and Lord Almighty. All right. Now, this looks repetitive at first, but unlike me, Cadman's not a hack. If you believe St. Bede, Cadman's divinely inspired, and I see no reason to disbelieve St. Bede. So let's look at what he's doing here. All right? Here's the first thing I'll point out. Each one of these little terms applies exactly to what's happening in the line. So look, right? You've got the work of the Father of Glories. What's the Father of Glories do? He, he makes the wonders in the second half of the line. Right? The holy shaper. What's the holy shaper do? He's the guy who lays out, he lays out the roof of heaven for the earth. So now we're thinking about God as like this divine architect who works for us. Right? And it works this way throughout the poem as we meditate on the different aspects of God as revealed in the different things he's created. He's the shaper. He's the architect. He's the, uh, he's the father of glories who makes all the wonderful things. Oh, that's lovely. Well done, Cat. But it's better than that. It's better than that. Oh gosh, we're really short on time. So I'm, I'm going to skip a couple things, but there are a couple th funny things to look at. We've got Eternal Lord popping up twice. Now again, Cadman knows what he's doing. He's not lazy. He doesn't use it just because it alliterates. What's he doing there with the Eternal Lord? What's the Eternal Lord do the first time? What's he do the second time? He adorned what? He adorned when? He, he adorned, and afterwards, he adorns the earth for men, right? So, first time, uh, he establishes the beginning, and then he afterwards adorns the earth for men. Before and after, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the eternal Lord, even though he's come down to create the earth for us. And that's the final thing that I'm going to point out here. It's just so nice. We start off in this sort of like cosmic scope. 
And we go down and down and down. We start off with the heaven kingdom guardian. We wind up with mankind's guardian at the end, right? So not just the guardian of heaven, which is great, but guardian of you and you and me and you and you. That's lovely. I cheated a little bit on the translation of Lord Almighty. The actual word there is Freya, which will eventually mean Lord. But Cadman's the beginning of our Old English poetic tr tradition. Any of you know Norse mythology to, to recognize that sound, Freya? The harvest god. Who said that? Bonus points, right. Yeah, this is Freyr. This is, this is the Old Norse god of the harvest, the Old Norse god who you pray to if you want grain to grow, if you want good weather, if you want things like that. What's Freya Almichti do? He, make, he adorns the earth, the ground for men. And that's really nice. Because what Cadman's done here is he's taken an old word that people would recognize from one of the pagan gods. He says, no, 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 no. You don't worship that old Freya, Freya right? You, you're not worshiping the idol. You want the guy who really makes the grass grow? You want the guy who really gives you the crops, really gives you the harvest? The real Freya Almichti is the guy who's also all of these things. All right? So what Cadman's done here, he's taken the old form of the Germanic poetry, he's taken the terms of the Germanic poetry, he's taken the very names of the old Germanic poetry, and he's co-opted it to make it the praise of God. And, if you're interested in conversion, well, look what St. Bede has to say about it, back at, at the front. In the monastery of this abbess, Abbess Hild, there was a certain brother who was especially marked by divine grace because he used to compose appropriately religious and godly songs so that whatever he learned from the divine writings through interpreters, he quickly turned into extremely delightful and moving poetry in English, which was his own language. By his songs, the minds of many were often enkindled to despise the world and desire heavenly things. And this is one of the ways that the English conversions really start to stick. Because now, instead of just having these weird guys with their Italian accents, you know, who are coming and talking to all these Germans, and they just don't get it, now it's in their own language. And people start to follow Cadman and to imitate Cadman. And the poetry starts to absorb the old ways of the Germanic life, starts to reflect it. And the culture becomes transformed from the inside out, thanks to that process. I suggest to you that this is something we should all be interested in, right? So the faithful is planted, so it must be restored. Cadman's project still resonates today. And the other great thing about Cadman is Cadman has followers. All right? He's the first, St. Bede tells us, but he's not the last. A number of poets follow in his footsteps, using the old Germanic poetry to praise God, to praise the God of their new religion. And this is where the dream of the rude comes in. We've got not a terribly long amount of time left here tonight, so we'll just look at the beginning of the dream of the root, because there are some really lovely things, and we'll establish the questions that we're going to answer next time. Okay? So let's just take the first lines. And I apologize for the translation. Uh, I went line by line because line by line preserves some sense of the verse. I preserved as much of the alliteration as I could without torturing the meaning. But a translation is a translation, so we'll, we'll work with it as best we can. Yes, sir. What does rude mean? Oh, rude. This is very, very important. Good place to start. You'll still see it if you go to sort of Anglophile parishes 
The rood is just the cross. It's directly cognate with the word rod, like a rod, right? And it's the old English word for cross. They say rude much more than they say cross. Cross ultimately comes from the Latin crooks, right? So rude is the cross. This is the dream vision of the cross. Okay? So, we start off with our speaker. Let's just look at the first three lines. Listen, to you I will tell the best of dreams which I dreamt in the deeps of the night after speech bearers sought their accustomed rest. So we know a couple things about our poet just from the beginning. He's seen a dream. It's in the deep parts of the night. It's in the very middle of the night. And what's a speech bearer? A human being. It's a human being, right? Because we're the only species, as far as I know, uh, only species of, of material things that has speech. So speech bearers, all other human beings are asleep. But again, this isn't just a funny way to say person, right? What does it mean we're saying all the speech bearers are asleep. Well, it's quiet, right? This guy's voice is the only voice we're hearing now. And we ought to pay attention because we're going to be getting a voice from an unexpected, from an unexpected source before too terribly long. And now the poem ramps up and gets really interesting really, really quick. It seemed that I saw a splendid tree led into the air. Light enfolded it, the brightest of trees. That battle standard was all infused with gold, and gems stood there fair on the face of the earth. Five there were upon the crossbeam. What he sees, well, what he sees is something very much like this, right? This is an early medieval processional cross. You see it, it's all gilded. You've got gems all over it. Except it's not just a processional cross, right? It's a processional cross on this huge, grand, cosmic scheme. It's filling the entire sky. Yeah? All right. He calls it a battle standard. A old English word is back and beacon. Why is the cross a battle standard? Because of Constantine? You conquering this sign? Yeah? Fighting the devil. And you're, you're fighting the devil? Yeah? Yeah, and the, the cross has always been the standard for Christians, right? From Constantine forward and beyond, right? Palm Sunday, you're going to talk about the banners of the king going forth? Yeah, it is our banner, it's our sign, so it's, it's the great sign of the Christians. And in being the sign of the Christians, we identify an interesting problem. Because this is a funny sign, right? Uh, it's hard to imagine worshipping the electric chair, right? The injection needle, right? But this is, this is our sign. We, we, we do it, you know, ten times every Mass. This? And the poet, he's not... He's not shy about this, right? We see this thing lifted up on the sky. We've got the gems on the surface of the earth. How many do we have up on the beam? Five. five. Why five? Five wounds. five wounds of Christ, yeah. But it still looks glorious. And then something really weird happens, right? As everyone is gazing on the cross, we call the cross the angel of the Lord because the cross is itself a messenger. Um, they're all gazing on it. And then, line 13, Splendid was the victory tree, and eyes stained with sin, mortally wounded with iniquities. But we see the glorious tree, honored in its trappings, triumphant in joys, adorned with gold, etc., etc., etc. And then things get weird. What happens next? Old strife of foes. Yeah, we see, that, we see the remnants of the old strife. We know it had the old strife. How? 
So our great cross here starts to bleed out of the right side. And you think here, of course, of the spear in Christ's side and, and him bleeding out, giving birth to the church through his right side. Now, that's a trippy enough image, right? We see through the gold, we see the blood, it's bloody, now it's glorious, now it's bloody, now it's glorious. More interesting, though, than just that, that switch from bloody to glorious for right now is how the dreamer reacts. When the dreamer sees the cross change as it does, what's he do? He's sad. And what else? He's afraid. Why are we sad and afraid? That's, I can think of a lot of things I would be if I saw, if I saw the, this crazy cross in the sky, but sad might not be the natural first reaction. But there's a really important reason for all of this. And the important reason goes back to two biblical texts. First of all, John, quoting, St. John, quoting the Old Testament, says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Right? They will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, this refers immediately, of course, to the crucifixion. Christ is raised, we all look on him who, who we've pierced. But, Christian, uh, Christian writers were pretty quick to say, yes, we looked on Christ whom we have pierced in the crucifixion. We're going to look at him again at the last judgment. And once you establish that, oh, yes, we get to see Christ at the Last Judgment, the preachers start to play with the idea. And I'm going to read off a quote from an old English homily here. Um, this is Vercelli homily too, for those of you who want to like, follow it up and do, do your homework. But the, the preacher says, on that day, the last day, our Lord will sit in his great majesty and show his face and his body. Then the wounds will be visible to the sinful, but he will be seen as whole and healthy by the righteous. Ooh! <laughs> right? So, on Judgment Day, how do you know where you're going to go? Well, you look at Christ. If you see him bearing all the marks of your sins, right? If you see him battered and bloody and wounded, it scares, <laughs> scares the hell out of you, said. Yeah, that's exactly what it does, right? But if, if he's all whole and healthy, good for you. That, that's the first important important tradition. The second important tradition comes from uh, Matthew 24, verse 30. Speaking about the last day again, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with much power and majesty. The last day, the sign of the Son of Man appears. We've already established what the sign of the Son of Man is, right? So in the last day, you're going to see the cross Magnificent in the sky. And then these two traditions fuse. And now our poet has a really, really big problem. Right? Because, well, he sees this. And then he sees it bloody and beaten and bruised and battered. Then he sees this. And then he sees it bloody and beaten and bruised and battered. And that's why you feel afraid. And that's why you feel sad, because, because there's a contradiction there, and there's a contradiction in you. you. You don't know what you do. His reaction makes sense, right? Uh, the first thing he does is he lies there for a long time, stretched out, prostrate before the cross. And then our poem takes what's going to be its weirdest turn of all. The cross, which has before been just this mute sign of the heavens, is going to speak. And it's going to tell to our dreamer about 
the crucifixion. It's going to tell him what he experienced as this witness to and participant in the death of God. So, things are about to get really, really weird. Um, we're getting close to time, and I don't want to bite off more than I can chew in the next five minutes, so here's what I would like you all to do, if you don't mind. Next time, first thing you're going to do, read really closely what the cross has to say about the crucifixion. Okay, read really closely what the cross has to say about the crucifixion. Then turn to John, to John's Gospel, to Matthew's Gospel. Read what the Gospels have to say about the crucifixion. Go back here. Read it again. See where the similarities are. See what the differences are. The poet's going to give you a depiction of the passion unlike anything you have ever seen before, I promise you. Okay? That's the first thing you're going to do. Second thing you're going to do, try to get your head around what exactly this cross is. Okay? Start with sort of the trippy vision of the cross, which is at the same time bloody and glorious. Start there. But then pay attention to the character of the cross as he's telling the crucifixion story. Who is he? What does he represent? All right? The final major thing that I really want you to do. Watch the character of the dreamer. We leave him off here tonight. Prostrate before the glorious cross of Christ. Yeah? In mortal fear for his soul. Knowing that he is, what's that? He's mortally wounded with his own sins. Okay? Watch how he changes. See if he changes. And then the biggest thing we're going to have to talk about next time is how that change comes about. You think you can do that? All right. So, that's where I'd like to stop tonight. Um, we can close with a prayer and go into questions. And I'll look very forward to diving into these things next time. about St. Augustine. Oh, yes. So, the, the story about how St. Saint, Saint Augustine of Canterbury comes to England is a fantastic story. The conversion of England is affected largely through a series of puns. Through a series of puns. Because St. Gregory the Great is walking through the slave markets in Rome, one, or just through the markets in Rome, and Rome has a slave trade at this time. And as he's walking along, he sees these pale, 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 blonde-headed kids in the market. So he walks up to these two boys and says, My lads, where are you from? Who are you? And they say, Ah, we are. Well, not, yeah, so St. Gregory says, Ah, no, no, no. Not Angli, but Anjali, right? I will turn the angles into angels. Then he asks them, Tell me. Who is your king? They say, our king is a man named Allah. And St. Gregory says, ah, your people will be made to ring with the word we don't say during Lent. Okay? Um, the third question he says is, what country do you come from? And they say, ah, my lord, we are from Dara, which was a Northumbrian kingdom. St. Gregory says, and by God's grace, I will snatch you, Dei Ira Dei, from the wrath of God. Sorry about that. Um, so, with that series of puns, uh, St. Gregory the Great decides to 
send the mission to England. He's remembered by the English as their own special apostle. They believe that he will intercede for them on Judgment Day because he was their apostle who brought the gospel to them. That, that's St. Gregory. So, uh, Professor, to what extent does the poem, The Dream of the Rude, uh, like uh, the hymn of Cadman, uh, partake of pre-Christian influences? Boy, to what extent? That's, to what exact extent? That's difficult to answer. It certainly does. Um, in the first place, the very verse form, right? The verse form, the language, this itself, it's, it's the old Germanic verse form that you find all over the continent. This is just the way the Germans do things. You'll see next time something very, very interesting in the relationship between the cross and Christ. Christ is described as a battle warrior. The cross is described as his thane. So you bring, what the poet does is he brings the Christian story of the crucifixion. He makes Christ the great, great young warrior, this great hero. He makes the cross his loyal servant. The disciples are going to become warriors too. So quite a lot. It's, it's bringing the crucifixion story. I'm giving away part of the game. But one of the things it's doing is bringing the crucifixion story into the terms and into the categories of the Germanic warrior culture. And it's fascinating. So to a fair extent. So I don't know if this question is totally, I don't know if this question is uh, uh, going to be off base or not. But uh, when you were describing the, uh, the, the confused images of both you know, sin and, and so I'll say salvation, I was thinking a lot of Revelation chapter 5 with the le lamb that was standing and slain, but you didn't give us anything like that for homework. Uh, is it related? or? It's absolutely fruitful to go there. And we're going to be going there next time, right? Because look, we've got these central paradoxes of the, uh, of the Christian faith. You've got the lamb who's slain, but at the same time he's crowned in heaven and he's the only one who can open the seals, right? Um, you've got a God who's also man. You've got, all the, and you've got a cross that is simultaneously glorious and bloody. It's absolutely that. That's exactly what the poet's doing. So not off base at all. Absolutely right on target. I think you said there were three, um, Dream of the Rude showed up three times, the 17-foot tall stone cross. I was wondering exactly where that was in Britain. And, but what was the third? So we've got, we've got the stone cross, we've got the gold processional cross, and we've got one manuscript. That's where the full version survives. The manuscript is called the Vercelli book, and it was in some way, this isn't quite fair, but it's especially lucky because it's in Vercelli. It's in Italy, so it's safe from people burning it because it's a, it's a relic of papism. Although the English were okay about preserving their manuscripts, but not, not great. So the Riccelli book is in Italy, and that's where the full version is still preserved. And the cross? And the cross, the cross was in, is in Scotland, in Riddle, Scotland. And it was knocked down, but it's been put back up. We're not quite sure if it's been put back up in the right order, but we think so. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. 
and may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.